Welcome to Startup Confidential, what industry insiders will never tell you that you need to know if you're building a consumer brand. With your host, best-selling author of Ramping Your Brand, Dr. James Richardson. Let's do this. Welcome to episode 108 of Startup Confidential. D to C is for scaling in really tiny, frequently ordering niches. So you've heard me talk before, I hope, about direct-to-consumer being simply a channel. It's not an industry, despite all the hype from 2010 to last year, when it all came tumbling down. The reason it feels like its own industry is that it has access to direct, real-time measurement of KPIs, like repeat purchase, cohort retention, yada yada. And all the things that have to be estimated in consumer receipt panels for brick retail businesses. Feels all very precise and self-contained. And there was just so much money going into pure play D2C consumer brands, especially in that 12-year period that it just seemed like its own beast. It had its own conferences, its own yada yada. But virtually every D2C metric that makes it so cool as a channel it's actually possible to measure through surveys and panel data sets for any retail brand. ARPU, LTV, repeat retention, all of it has analogous metrics through survey and panel methodologies. And look, some mature CBG brands actually look at all that stuff. One reason you don't hear much hype about D2C anymore, folks, is that these businesses have been imploding due to multiple financial pressures that make them unprofitable, even after some of them scale. But the other reason, folks, is that some of the businesses with otherwise strong direct-to-consumer channel unit economics ran out of consumers. In other words, they leveraged internet-based interest ads and networking to aggregate very tiny consumer niches that are not profitable to serve via distributed brick retail location. But the audience was so fucking tiny, the internet was the only way to find them at all. Now, I've worked with some of these D2C companies, and I'm not going to talk about what my NDAs do not allow me to discuss. Instead, I want to share some principles I've deduced along the way so you can evaluate direct-to-consumer brands targeting consumer audiences on your own, even if you're just guesstimating how some of these variables play out. And so you can determine on your own whether this or that D2C proposition is really going to have viability. And the key is you have to understand three demand variables. Average order value, the addressable market in households for the business, and the consumption frequency and how they all align. The big financial problem for direct-to-consumer that some of you know is that this channel is very slow to reach lower cost to service rates per unit due to your initial reliance on drop shippers. You know, much slower to reduce your shipping costs than the pace at which freight costs decline with Kehi or McLean. As a small company, for example, shipping five boxes at a time to one zip code via FedEx is super expensive compared to entering the same zip code via chain retailer, at least on a freight to shipping comparison basis. Grabbing spare space on a Kehi truck for a pallet of your stuff just ain't that expensive per unit compared to drop shipping them to people's homes. This is in part, folks, why the retailer marks your product up 80 to 100% off the distributor's price. They need to finance their distribution network, which they're making available to you. 
the high initial cost of service for the mass majority of direct-to-consumer brands immediately raises the stakes for these businesses, unless they are super lucky and have flat, super lightweight products, like my friends at EarthBreeze. <laughs> but most do not. So raising money to cover the initial loss on highly ineffective shipping <laughs> from a financial perspective is risky, right? Because it assumes you're going to have lots of cheaper-to-serve retail households down the line after you've gathered up all those easy proactive adopters online. And you may, and you may not. Now, Liquid Death clearly had those households because it was just selling water in a can. The market of households is ginormous, you know, but not all products get that kind of initial killer traction via viral ads driving traffic to a D2C site. And not all product offerings that are D2C have that many households who are ever going to try their thing, like ever, ever. Early on in the life of a consumer brand, direct-to-consumer can make sense, and this is how, as a break-even or barely profitable service to your heavy users, your brand's heavy users, in a defined local region close to your point of manufacturing, usually where you're based. It becomes essentially your private club channel offering case packs on a unit discount, you know, years before you're ever going to get into club or years before you're ever going to be shipping cases of your product for sale as a UBC or years before you'll ever be able to finance the inventory necessary to enter a club division. And D2C, as I've always said, is a great way to jumpstart an email list full of fans from whom you can learn and spread the word. Direct-to-consumer has been in the headlines from 2010 to 2022 for scaling consumer brands wildly fast. Warby Parker, Harry Shaving, Dr. Squatch Soap Company. It seemed for years that this was some easy channel to scale in. Much easier, it appeared, than brick retail with its huge delays just getting a buyer meeting. The infrequency of shelf sets resets by the retailer allowing you to expand your brand blog. That's only gonna happen once a year. And the overall length of line of brands trying to get in the door. The allure of direct response. Social media ads appeal to venture capitalists and founders because the effectiveness of marketing seemed easier to measure in real time. And it made the variable costs of marketing more palatable to everyone. More palatable than, you know, $10 million TV ad campaigns. Who the hell knows what that did? Although you can measure the latter. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, everyone just seems sucked into this channel that was hip, sexy, and it just seems so easy. Not true. Thousands of direct-to-consumer companies scaled in 2020 alone, well into the seven figures because of COVID-19 subsidies and decreased consumer spending overall during that crazy year. Now, we now know that this was a massive false positive for the entire sector. And not just because of Apple's privacy rules change in 21. The cost of social media click-through had already been rising steadily before Apple made that move. Everybody who was deep into direct-to-consumer anything already knew they were going to reach a cost problem pretty soon. Apple just accelerated it. It was bound to happen as ad platforms generally mature, they become wildly more expensive in terms of the absolute amount of money you have to spend to get anything to happen. You know, it became more and more expensive to acquire customers in the last two to three years, unless you had unicorn-like high engagement advertisements 
that were passed around like party favors, such as my former client, Dr. Squatch Soap. You know, but the, for the other 99% of brands who don't have that kind of content, acquiring customers is expensive, you know, and it's going to yield profit only months later, deep into the repeat purchase cycle, if you have decent repeat purchase. If you think of most retail volume in the consumer space as stuff sold at Walmart, club, grocery stores, then you're focusing folks on a world of very low ticket items. Maybe $15 per unit at most, but mostly, mostly folks CPG items selling in retail at two and a half dollars to four bucks. So low ticket items generally mean there ain't a lot of deep thought going into selecting them. Instead, it is unconscious symbolic thought that accomplishes the sale or the persuasive process, so to speak. And that's why packaging and marketing symbolism matters so much in driving trial. $249 eyeglasses on Warby Parker, plenty of conscious thought involved because there's even a pupillary distance measurement on your smartphones. $899 premium pasta sauce, eh, some thought. Like, you know, I don't know, is this gonna be that much better than Prego? Why should I believe this bullshit? $2 a bag of Lay's chips? Fucking mindless. In fact, you most likely have never ever consciously selected Lay's or any of these market-leading brands. You know why? Because your first experience of Lay's was when someone else bought it and shoved it in your face at an event. In other words, you had Lay's and all these other brands for years without even fucking buying them. By the time you were even beginning to buy your own groceries, Lay's had already colonized your brain and your palate and your sensory memory. Ticket price times average units per order equals something direct to consumer marketers call average order value. In retail bloobity bloobity, this is called purchase volume. It's variable number one in my discussion of where direct-to-consumer can shine if you align other variables. Ultimately, it tends to be the higher AOV business models that survive to scale in direct-to-consumer as a channel. For CPG brands, though, this requires selling cases of product, boxes of shit, which is just not how most people try things. Unless, cue Mike Cesario, it's canned water. I mean, how fucking disappointing can water be? Well, you haven't been to Tucson. Opened up a tap. Even selling cases of most grocery products don't generally lead to AOVs big enough to make money shipping direct to consumer because grocery items weigh too damn much and your customers are usually scattered all over the country. They're all conveniently located three miles from your co-man. And the reality is that Heavy freight, which is a lot of the stuff that moves into grocery stores, folks. Heavy freight gets cheapest at the half and full truckload level. Half an 18-wheeler, a full 18-wheeler. That's what I'm talking about. And this requires millions of dollars of sales just to one retailer to get those kind of freight discounts. It's a benefit of scale. So direct-to-consumer as a channel makes money best when AOVs are much higher than a case of liquid death was when it started, or is even now. And yes, we can assume that liquid death almost assuredly lost money per order initially. Because the bet was never on direct-to-consumer. The bet was on just getting into retail with traction, with proof of concept, that the demand machine was working. 
which the brand did very successfully. And then it got into retail equally successfully after raising something like 75 mil. Generally, you need to be at $125 average order value or more in direct-to-consumer to comfortably, profitably scale from the get-go. Unless you're shipping paper. <laughs> Some people are. Hey listeners, exponential growth involves more than a killer product, great fundraising, and a great team. You need superb analytics to ride the ramp. Dr. Richardson's latest online course is now available. Effective consumer marketing for early stage founders. You can find course pricing and details at premiumgrowthsolutions.com slash courses. And now back to the episode. The second variable critical to understanding the viability of direct-to-consumer is frequency of purchase. Direct-to-consumer rarely makes any sense when you're selling a product purchased monthly or less, unless you have a high AOV to cover inefficient shipping costs and an ultra-tiny consumer niche you are chasing. So low frequency and high AOV, that can work, but it's going to require a lot of households to scale a lot. A lot more than other models. Now, Dr. Squatch, because they're selling bar soap, that's a low frequency of purchase and a medium AOV. I mean, it's not as bad as $2. I mean, go to their website, you can see what it costs. But it's also not $125 in order. We can just intuit that from the outside looking in. And so you have a system where you have to become vertically integrated really fast and use your ad-driven hyperscaling to reduce your costs and maybe you can squeak it through onto the other side <laughs> but there's a permutation between frequency and i and aov that does bode really well for direct consumer and that's high frequency and high aov that combination works really well to scale direct to consumer businesses if you can initially break even on logistics and, and shipping. And the reason that it works really well for direct-to-consumer is it orients beautifully to one of the things that catalog sales historically and direct-to-consumer internet-driven marketing traffic orients to beautifully, and that is not requiring a lot of households to drive a massive amount of revenue. For example, if we look at Daily Harvest in the 2010s, when it was shipping weekly to every customer direct to consumer for its entire business. If you were getting, say, smoothies and meals for two people, and I used to be a customer, your average order value was easily over $125 every single week. Easily. Their geeks were probably buying $300 worth of product every week. This kind of concentrated revenue per household is unheard of in conventional food brands sold at grocery stores, by the way. You know, by the time consumers are bringing home, I don't know, cases of product per week of their favorite CPG brand from Target or Walmart, these soft drinks and the water brands, which is usually what I'm talking about, you know, they cost almost nothing per bottle. They've been priced down to nothing per unit to get the ticket price for the case down to where it will fly off the shelf. So for what Daily Harvest was able to pull off is truly miraculous in terms of one thing, annual revenue per household. And using the math I just gave you, I can estimate that Daily Harvest only needed about 500,000 households to purchase at that rate to create $250 million in direct-to-consumer revenue, which is their last publicly reported peak revenue. Yeah, you read that right. 
That amounts to only half of 1% of American homes. <laughs> it's not even worth using household penetration as a variable when you're talking about so few people. And it sounds also like that's kind of the size of the tribe you'd expect for an ultra-low-carb, heavy vegetable, gluten-free, vegan meal brand. <gasps> yeah, you've eliminated a lot of Uncle Larry's. Conversely, just for contrast, <clears throat> a brand like Dawn, you know, the dish soap, it has a household penetration of 66%, according to Statista, my favorite little source of cheap market research. So a brand that widely used can find consumers basically anywhere and in large numbers on an annual basis in almost any retail store. So it's only common sense for Dawn to ship to retailers because they can fill entire 18-wheelers and do and send them straight into distributor warehouses at the cheapest possible price per unit in the universe. Like, there is no FedEx or Amazon freight contract that's going to match, you know, what McLean will do with a full truckload on a price per unit if your name is Procter & Gamble. I'm sorry. Anyways, the third variable in vetting the wisdom of a D2C business is just that, the size of your addressable audience as a percent of American households that you can reasonably convert to trial. Now, you don't want to think of this optimistically. You want to think of it pessimistically, as in which folks out there are crazy enough to pay what your stuff costs because they are that dissatisfied with the usually cheaper alternatives they currently have or they had no earthly idea your category could offer such an amazing experience oh my god kettle chips folks long ago once fought this very fight against frito-lay against lay's potato chip which at the time we've all forgotten was using trans fat oil <laughs> okay <laughs> And it carved out a niche for itself. So at the time, Kettle didn't actually need, at a premium price, a lot of households to generate $500 million at its peak. I think it's almost half that now. It's totally faded. The most extreme example, though, that I know with respect to monetizing a truly microscopic niche is Daily Harvest. The brand did very well initially selling subscription meals and smoothies because the internet, folks, is really good at servicing tiny tribes who have really rare preferences like the founder. This is exactly the same power that social media have in aggregating and recruiting terrorists who would otherwise never meet or dare to meet each other, right? So tiny nutritional tribes where people with very bizarre preferences are essentially dispersed and don't know each other Servicing those folks at very high prices on a weekly, you know, or even a bi-weekly basis can scale very large direct-to-consumer businesses really fast, in part because they don't need to convince a lot of folks. They don't need to convince 10 million people. That's really hard to do in two years. The problem is that brands like Daily Harvest, they may have built a nutritional proposition that's so fucking niche it has no bridge to the next 10% of household penetration that's going to keep it growing. So generally, brands that scale on in this way off tiny niches have become hyper-adapted to something super weird. And they've become adapted at scale to it. This then creates a real challenge when they have to find, and they usually do, have to find a way to dilute and mainstream a much less sophisticated core set of UPCs to get the next 10% in addition to the half percent 
that started the business. And this is what many, many specialty food brands learn to do long before social media fueled direct-to-consumer channeling was a thing. They often started in catalogs and then they spread their wings, right? My favorite is the one we've all forgotten, that's Stonewall Kitchen, which started selling a whole bunch of fancy artisan jams to local weirdos through catalog in New England in the 1970s and 80s. They then took off as a catalog and took off, but they've actually ended up scaling, you know, wild main blueberry jam primarily <laughs> all over the store, all over the country in retail to get their grocery business to move because that was the most mainstreamable thing they had to offer. The reality is that D2C, I believe, was always oversold from 2010 to 2012 as a channel because there aren't a lot of CPG brands whose ticket price, average purchase volume, and purchase frequency accrue enough money to fund the marketing necessary to be your own retailer and manufacturer. And that's what the channel is all about. Really, it's another reason, other side from all the sexy metrics, why it feels like its own industry. It's because you're both. And man, have we seen how easy, how easy it is to underestimate how much a brick retailer does for brands until you have to do it all yourself. That's all I've got, folks. Be safe out there. Thanks for listening. Remember, Dr. Richardson has loads of resources for founders at premiumgrowthsolutions.com. And when you're on his site, don't forget to take his founder's quiz and see if you're ready to ride the skate ramp of exponential growth.